peek behind the curtain of the Softly Training Lab with the Softly Performance Podcast. The pinnacle of human performance is out there, and we intend to find it. Welcome back to another episode of the Softly Performance Podcast. It is your in-house registered dietitian, Brooke West here, and I am joined by my favorites, Thing One and Thing Two. I'm excited we're all back together. The three original... It's been a while. It's been a while. It's been a hot minute. The OG crew. I'm excited. It actually has been a long... It's It's been quite a few shows. I think so. It has. And today, I'm also excited because we have a ton of questions from social media that we fielded about, fielded about performance, mindset, nutrition, kind of a whole bunch of topics. Some of them are kind of funny. Some of them are really good questions. They're all good questions, I guess. So we're just going to dive right in and go through and give the people what they want. This is what the people ask for. We put it out, guys. We encourage participation. Hopefully next time around, more people will tune in. But for those of you who did, we're just going to start rolling down the list. So number one from, and if, oh, by the way, if I mispronounce your name or your handle or whatever. Harass him. I'm fucking sorry. All right. but <laughs> Get the fuck over it. We're gonna have Chrisisms and there's Georgisms. Yeah, fair enough. I, I mean, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do my best, but some of y'all come up with some weird fucking shit for your Instagram. But I'm just gonna pretend not to judge you. <laughs> it's okay, Brooks. Brooks' email address, other than Brooke at Softlead, is Brooke at Orlando Blooms Lover sixteen sixteen. Why you gotta throw me under the bus <laughs> like that? I'm just kidding. All right, here we go. Number one from Nick Youngblood. What do you think? Oh man. Y'all in your fucking English. What do you think is or can be the impact of sports psychology and mindfulness for people? So I guess the impact of sports psychology and mindfulness. George, you're doing something with sports psychology, are you not? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Going to school for it currently right now. And I actually enjoy this question a lot. It's been something that I think we as a company have actually really kind of come as a whole towards and started working with, you know, Understanding that, hey, the mindset is really what carries us forward, not just the training, but if we can pair the two together, it gives us this potential to moving forward. So in short, to answer his question, having some kind of understanding of sports psychology or of how the brain works, along with you know applications of mindfulness to help people apply those techniques, is going to be very beneficial in reaching optimal potential for the, the human who's exploring like and to enhance human performance. Cool. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, when we, t- when we look at, cause we've done a number of podcasts on, and we've touched on the topics of mindfulness and Brooks being very mindful right now, taking selfies with her phone. <laughs> and she says, <laughs> dang, all right, whatever. Anyways. Um, the, so the topic of mindfulness is something that is continuously brought up in a lot of different sports venues, because ultimately what we're trying to do, like George said, was we're trying to tap into this idea of a flow state, this idea of our, of our true potential as individuals. And we use, you know, the gym as a space and our training programs as a methodology to tap into our potential, but arguably, you know, more so than the, the size of our quads or our glute engagement, our, our biggest limiting factor is going to be our, our mental capacity and to what realms we can begin to push ourselves into and to understand what our own capabilities are. Because ultimately, However you perceive the problem, however you perceive your weakness is going to govern how you train. So 
you know, being mindful and being aware of the things that you feel like you need to work on because we, you know, probably the most popular question we get, you know, at Softleet is what do I do to get ready for X, Y, and Z? Like what training program do I need to follow? And as a general guiding principle, we have always advocated one simple principle and that, you know, training is meant to address your weaknesses, not, not just, not just reinforce your strengths. So understanding what your limitations are, understanding, you know, what it is you need to work on is ultimately going to govern how you go forward. So I would, I would advocate that everyone needs mindfulness in their life, not only for your own emotional well-being, but especially if you wanted to, you know, see real gains in your training, uh, being able to apply appropriate training, volume, methodology, et cetera, will ultimately allow you to reach your, your fullest potential. And, and real quick on that too, to add to that, you know, the, the way I look at this is like mindfulness is completely different than some kind of idea of sports performance, sports performance for psychology or mental performance, you know, mindset and, and the mindfulness aspect is a lot of what Chris talks about when it's coming into like being here in this present and doing those things. And then we go and look at mental performance. I like to look at mental performance as utilizing different techniques that are going to be, um, utilized in, in certain situations that, that you can practice at lower stress times. And if you guys are paying attention to our Instagram, we're actually doing tips of the week on mindfulness, um, and continue looking out for those, you know, there's, there's, different approaches to what we do with this. And it's leading us down to a path to really focusing on the individual really to understand what their mindset is and how to really reach that potential of enhancing their performance. Bam. Brooke, you got anything? Are you still busy curating? No, I mean, I think you guys, thank you for that. (laughs) No, I mean, you guys are the experts, I think on the sports psychology aspect of it. You covered all the great bases. Brooke is mindful as fuck right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just kidding. look there's just so much going on in this brain that's true that's true all right so hopefully that one is answered um number two from cunning hams yes cunning ham yep cunning i pronounced that right cunning hams uh maintaining performance gains while balancing a sleep disorder apnea insomnia etc okay um so i would say and this is there's Man, there's a couple of different ways we can go about addressing this. I, from from the research that I have seen, I, I think on a on a basic human level, you know, low aerobic, moderate, to, uh, low aerobic to moderate intensity work uh, can really help boost your sleep performance. However, the high intensity stuff, the stuff that really jacks you and puts you into a sympathetic state, is really not going to do much for your sleep. You know, period. So it's it's. You know, as far as people who are suffering from, you know, chronic insomnia or anything like that, you know, low doses of exercise are shown to really help with that. Um, however, you know, to to kind of get to at least what my interpretation of the point of your question was that, you know, how do I manage my training expectations if I am suffering from these types of issues? And honestly, man, it, it, it really depends on one you know, what your training expectations are, I would say that, you know, while you're dealing with this, it's going to be really hard because sleep is such a critical component of your recovery to really expect, you know, very large performance gains or a lot out of your body, like while these issues remain very prevalent. 
Um, however, that doesn't mean to not do anything. I mean, I, we would definitely advocate for some, you know, low density aerobic work just to help keep you mobile, keep you moving. If anything, I would look at probably, you know, these times, especially if, depending on how long you've been suffering with this, but look at these times almost as a means to kind of prevent loss more so than expect gain, right? So just, you know, staying mobile, working on your mobility, you know, getting some low density aerobic work in, you know, is probably the best you can hope for at this point in time, rather than, you know, you're not going to be PRing any major lifts, nor would I train that way if, if I definitely wasn't able to sleep at night. So that's my answer. You know, I, I actually, it's funny. I'm actually, it's, it's funny you didn't mention this, Chris, but you know, it's something cause you're so big on it, especially the breathing work. What got me into actually learning more about breathing work was the sleeping, um, disorders because I noticed that I was having problems sleeping as well. And it was, it was, it was either insomnia or whatever it was, but I caught myself waking up throughout the night and it was either a few things. It was either I was too sympathetic. I wasn't doing the proper things prior to going to bed, or I was just, just not in position to go ahead and go to sleep at that time period. And my body just would wake up. And, and I really started trying to figure out like, Hey, what sleeping disorders are there out there and how can they be fixed without being put on sleep medicine or anything else like that? And there is multiple research studies out there, um, utilizing breathing to help get rid of, um, sleep disorders, you know, sleep apnea and, and, and insomnia. But the way I look at this is understanding the reason. And I love that Chris hit it. You know, we're talking about low aerobic work helps develop utilization of oxygen in the system. Well, that's the same exact thing in the same idea of like, how can I do things? Well, maybe throwing in some kind of low aerobic work and then pairing it with some kind of breathing work prior to bed. I mean, there's multiple different things that you can get into when we look at sleep hygiene and routine. You know, I'm going to throw this out here real quick because this is something that I've utilized on myself and multiple other athletes from anecdotal experience that is paired with evidence of research, you know, and, and it's actually shutting yourself down 60 minutes prior to bed. And it does sound very unrealistic in terms of a lot of people's lifestyle, you know, so not everyone can go ahead and shut down 60 minutes prior to bed and go in that, in, in, in that path. But something is, you know, as, as, as little as 30 minutes cutting out all lights inside the house and, you know, utilizing a candle for your natural light for a little bit and going from there and taking a hot shower before going into a cold room for your bed. There's very simple things you can do there to help with that. Um, you know, I think Brooke can come in and talk a lot about this from the nutrition standpoint and, and how can we fix sleep? Well, we're talking about health and wellness as a whole. And it's, it's not just the exercise aspect. I mean, we can go ahead and get that, but I think Brooke would have a lot of insight on nutrition wise to help with improving sleep. Well, I think the biggest thing is when your body is already under a lot of stress, we don't want to stress it even more by doing things like having an extreme calorie deficit, because all you're going to do is add stress and possibly increase inflammation. So I would absolutely recommend if your goal is performance, um, maintaining your performance while you're trying to work through your sleep disorder and what that looks like for you, I would at least be eating at a maintenance level or above to make sure that you're getting the proper fuel. And I would also be mindful of the food choices you make and think about um, I actually really recommend keeping a food diary because there's going to be certain things that you notice irritate you and things that don't. And George and I have explored this a lot um, with stuff going on and experimenting with our diet patterns. But it's a game changer if you start eliminating foods that you know don't agree with you and, you know, really honoring your body and listening to your body in that way. But don't try any extreme weight loss calorie deficit stuff because all you're going to do is increase that, you know, possibly increase inflammation by adding to that stress load. Yeah, it, it 
I think the way we hit this too, and, and I look at this, I look at this in a three-way part, right? We got it. We have the metabolic, the endocrine, and the immune system. And when we start having a lack of sleep, that does cause for, um, you know, those three systems to start downgrading due to the fact that they're not able to get their full potential from our sleep. So that's the reason why we're coming in here and talking about our nutrition and talking about low aerobic work because all those things there in low movement work is because it now helps us manage those three things. It helps manage our immune system, our endocrine system, and our metabolic system, right? And that is something that I think a lot of people don't realize is you start not getting the sleep that you need. You start seeing other things go to the wayside in which we start seeing obesity and we start seeing stress. We start seeing anxiety raise. There's a lot of things that come in play into that. And the, the three most things that you can actually utilize and handle that are for free is going to be how to control your exercise and what to control and what you choose to put into your mouth as 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 nutrition and as, as fuel to give you that. Exactly. Watch what you put into your mouth at Cunningham. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> But yeah, look look at look at breathing work. Look into that if you want to reach out to me and Chris. I'm pretty sure me and Chris can give you some breathing protocol work that I've utilized for myself and other athletes to help with sleep, um, who do have s- some sleep problems and stuff like that. I have seen things change with putting in a routine and a hygiene plan prior and after sleep. Uh, so yeah, cool. reach out to us. Reach out to us. That's the theme for everything, guys. If you guys have any questions about what we're talking about, feel free to hit us all up, and we'll give you our Instagrams once the show's over. All right, moving on. Number three, AZ Bad Ombre. Assuming a bad ombre from the state of Arizona is how I'm reading that. Uh, CBD benefits and dosing for active duty military. Man, I wish the Army would just get on that weed train. They are not going to do it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, it should be none, right? Because you can pop hot on a drug test with CBD full spectrum. It depends. I mean, and and this is, I have, I having been active duty before, I, I, I have never, the people who I've known have popped hot are the ones who are actually like smoking weed. Like, I wouldn't I wouldn't risk it. And I don't think we're qualified to answer that question. True. Good resources, though. George, I know you've got some. What are some good resources to reach out yeah. to if you want to look was, into that? I was actually going to say the same thing as like, I'm not qualified enough to sit here and be like, hey, you should be dosing. Just understand that you can pop and that's it. But if you are looking for really good research and, and education, go ahead and go to UCANA. Uh, at UCANA, they they put out very good information in regards to this for educating the the individual on how to utilize CBD, um, and they do talk a lot about the military and, and how the active duty uh, should utilize it. So and I'm going to go ahead and just always, stay there. Always consult your your on your unit doc or unit physician. Will also be a good resource for that. Yeah, and and also don't be afraid to do research on it. I and mean, that's all I'm going to say. Research yourself and see what's out there, so you have a better understanding of it. And and that's it. Yeah. Cool. All right. So, sorry I couldn't give you a more concrete answer on that one. But number four, at Anthony321, where is the adventure program at, and is there a new one coming out? (laughs) (laughs) Motherfucker, everything's an adventure. Your life's an adventure. (laughs) 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 Um, I don't know. George, did we ever talk about doing an adventure program? Um, yeah, it's funny. Apex? I thought that's what Apex turned into. Um, So, Apex is kind of like our adventure program. The adventure program he's talking about was literally – 
you just take it with you and it literally was like TRX and that's oh, really just what it was. Okay. That's the kind of programming that was. And gotcha. yes, I, um, that was a, that was a big hit for a lot of dudes who were, you know, out hiking and stuff like that compared to now. So are we looking on planning on to do another adventure style program like that? We haven't really talked about it much. Um, we are talking about doing some kind of venture adventure programming type races. Um, but I'll go ahead and, and put that on the, the idea board that uh, that we have in, in the lengthy <laughs> idea board. <laughs> no, yeah, like I said, um, all our training programs support your own personal life adventure. So get after it and die living. And get you have it. so many to choose from. It's true. And take so pictures. email Chris and George if you have questions about which one to choose. I just harass them and and they'll let me know where I need to be and what program. There you go. Yeah, you I go. mean, yeah, all you right, hit it the apex. Number five. At Alexandra Weir, training the wrong way for selection or competitions due to bad coaching? Question mark. <laughs> well, I'm I'm assuming I'm I'm look I'm looking for the question word in there, but I'm not seeing it. However, we'll address we'll just we'll just look at that as a statement. Training the wrong way for selections or competitions due to bad coaching, and and for me, I I've really seen this in my experience come to really come down to one of two things: either a the coach who's training you doesn't understand when you need to peak, i.e. you peak too early, like before your date. Um, or two, you have a misunderstanding of the weaknesses of the individual and program something that they like they, they don't really necessarily need to spend that much focus on. So a misunderstanding of the weaknesses which governs the training program and two, people peaking too early. And... And how we try to remedy this, especially within our own programming, is because we get this question, this is a very popular question all the time. Like, you know, I love getting emails. They're like, oh man, like what what program do I need to go on? Because I'm getting ready to go, like I want to go to selection. I'm like, well, when do you want to go to selection? They're like, well, it wouldn't really be a possibility for another two and a half years. And I'm like, bro, like that's... Yeah. It's two and a half years away. Like, I mean, we're not, we're not, don't, don't worry about selection or ranger school, you know, two and a half years out. I mean, there's, there's a lot of other stuff to focus on prior to that. And, and especially when people get into that mindset, they really try to do so much in, in such a, you know, an early amount of time that they either A, get injured from overtraining or B, you know, when they, when they kind of blow their timeline, like they peak before they actually go to the school. So that, so they're showing up at a, you know, less than optimal state, you know, it's like if you shifted the Olympics, you know, two weeks to the left or to the right, you would alter someone's four year training cycle, right? Cause like they're designed to peak within a very specific window. So if you want to look at it in that sense, I mean, I, I those are, I guess those are the, those are the ways where I've seen, you know, training the wrong way for selection. And especially in the military, most of the time people way over train. Like y'all, like we rock in the morning and then we spend two hours in the gym after that. And then we go to work and then we spend three hours in the gym after work. And then we go home and then we do that for seven days a week. And, you know, we, we plateau, we break, etc. So yeah, those are, those are the two things that I would take a look at, but George, 
Yeah, I'm going to come from a, another side of this. I like where you went with that, Chris. That was spot on, dude. Um, what I'm going to come at and look at, dude, is is more of how the coach should look at an athlete who's getting ready for selection or a specific competition and, 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 and understand the contextual understanding of that event or occupation that the athlete or individual is trying to work towards like that's the that's the like the key that I look at right and then from there it's like well where is this athlete at within that that phase of them getting there are they someone who has not been to boot camp yet are they someone who has already been through boot camp and is getting ready to go through selection or are they an athlete who's already been in the military for a few years does have wear and tear and they just need to go ahead and focus on developing some volume in the right ways to get them to that right and i break those into a category one two and three type athlete when i look at a tactical athlete if i look at an individual who is doing some type of endurance type event the same exact thing so we got to look at it and, and, and it's in the problem we see here with bad coaching is is a lot of people don't realize that hey you have a plan that you get to work towards and develop and again the peaking idea is the biggest thing you end up seeing that people were three four five weeks out from a date of their competition even three weeks and their volume and intensity is pretty much higher than you know what it should be and we start seeing either they're not recovering fast enough or those kinds of things i think another big part too is really understanding your athlete because when it comes down to coaching someone for a selection especially in terms of of coming from our end i get emails all the time as well just like chris is hey i'm two and a half years out from selection i want to do a b c and d and this is the time now to where we can actually utilize that time period to develop an annual training program from that day to their specific changing to their specific date for selection. And now I'll go ahead and develop multiple different programs and phases to get them to their goal. Right. You, at the end of the day, you become a tactical, you become a professional athlete. I mean, and to, for example, I used uh, we had a guy follow the Mountain Hunter program. And he's followed the Mountain Hunter program for a year, getting ready for his season for hot shots up in the mountains. And we set it up through email where it was literally, he was like, hey, what a program do I follow? It's like, you start here, you go through here, you go through here. Now he's four weeks out from his current, uh, current duty station, what he has to do for hot shot stuff. And I told him to go jump on the Apex program and just go ahead and keep it super chill until you go ahead and get ready for it. Again, it's really having that understanding, you know, of the athlete and what they're trying to accomplish. Again, and their weaknesses. So that's kind of the approach that I'm taking from this end on that compared to, you know, that. Because again, like I said, Chris nailed on the head with a lot of those things. So, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Hopefully, Alexandra, that uh, whatever it is you're training for, you uh, you crush it with good coaching from Softleet, not bad coaching from all our competitors. Just kidding. You're <laughs> such a cheese ball. <laughs> I can't even, like, cheesier than fucking Cheetos. Listen, I can't right love now. Me, love me some fucking Cheetos. All right, ah, good old-fashioned Nolan Bastion. Compensatory acceleration training and its benefits for the athletes. Very good. All right, so cat training. My understanding of cat training is basically, I mean, it really comes down to one simple equation, force equals mass times direction, physics, right? So it's it's looking at the the contraction phase of the movement and looking to accelerate through that portion of the lift. And we utilize this, this concept uh, in this thing called tempo work that we do, right? Because we're, we're, we're trying to, especially when you, when you see the X movement in tempo work, you're looking to explode through or, or move as quickly as possible through a portion of that lift. 
and why this is useful um, if you're an athlete and you are looking to, you know, put up big numbers or whatever, you're you're looking at having to essentially move less weight, but move that weight faster, as if you were kind of lifting heavier. If that makes sense, kind of like, you know, moving moving 135 pounds very fast versus moving 315 pounds once very slow um, is the way I understand cat training. So, George? Yeah. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say that uh, it's a quote by Dr. Fred um, Hatfield. In all the world of sports, speed is king. Um, and and I, I know the reason why Nolan asked this question is because um, we both prior just got done taking the power athlete uh, methodology course and all that good stuff. And one thing that John Wilborn and those guys are doing over at Power Athlete are really developing really great programs that help you know sports athletes get to where they need to go. And one thing we see with cat training is the fact that it helps us, you know, deliberately focus on maximizing um, and increasing acceleration through that construction phase, right? And that's what we're looking for. And you know. Why are we focusing on that? Well, one of the biggest reasons is due to the fact that we're able to train motor units. And when we're able to train those motor units, we're talking about our fast twitch muscle fibers um, will activate sooner, which now focuses on greater explosiveness. So what's cool is I actually just got done um, writing out one of the cycles that you'll be seeing a uh, couple, couple uh, not this coming cycle, but the next one, um, I actually put in uh, cat squats in there due to the fact that we were focusing on a regeneration style type program, um, but still focusing on really working and building athleticism through the athlete. So I put that in there. And, and again, because I think everybody does need it, especially if we're talking about building explosive power, speed, and acceleration, that is something that, you know, every athlete can benefit from no matter who they are. And, and that's kind of, that's, that's where I'm at with, with cat training. I think it's a great tool. Um, it's something I've used multiple times. I'm actually even doing it now, right now. I'm playing around with it with my ultra running right now um, as my strength day. So I'll go in and get after, you know, some three by 10 or even one by 20 at, you know, at cat squats at a lighter weight and really focus on explosiveness. And it's helping carry over to how I'm able to manage energy um, out on the mountains right now. So I'm really excited with how things are going. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, guys, force equals mass times acceleration. You know, intensity is mass times distance divided by time. So, you know, applying those principles of physics, I think I might have misspoke earlier. I think I said mass times direction. I meant to say mass times acceleration equals force, and then mass times distance divided by time equals intensity. So anyways, long story short, work on your explosive power. Cat training is good for that. That is what it requires of you. You're accelerating through the contractile portion of the lift. Yeah. And, and one thing too, guys, understand that everything that we utilize when we do our programs from any company that's out there, the goal for us is to create durability and prevent injury. And that's one of the things that also you know, cat training actually still does when we talk about that. So again, take that into, take that to heart when you guys are looking at stuff and we do ask you to be fast and powerful with a certain, uh, rep scheme instead of trying to have that bar slow down. They need to keep, you know, again, there's a method to the madness in programming. Make sure you understand that. There sure is. Um, all right. Now it's, now it's Brooke's turn. Brooke, we've all been, the nutrition we've been talking for a while and actually this one's from summer in sf i actually went to school with her we went to santa clara university together so shout out does she know the awkward frosted tips go bro 
Chris? I did, not, I did not have summer. If you're listening to this podcast, I did not have frosted tips when we were at Santa Clara. I had frosted tips when I lived in when I was in high school. Bring back the frosted tips. No, y'all. Anyway, summer's question or comment rather is that I've hit a plateau with weight loss. Want to continue to gain muscle but lose mass? There's a lot in this question. First of all, if you're hitting a plateau with weight loss, there's two big things, and this is going to sound counterintuitive. You're eating too little or you're eating too much. Not even bringing in all the factors that could be going on with physical activity. A common thing we see, especially with women, is they go a little too gung-ho on the calorie deficit, and it's actually going to stall weight loss and slow that metabolism down. Or you've been working in a calorie deficit for too long, and that's also going to kind of slow that process because the body doesn't want to lose weight. It really wants to stay at its, its baseline. So my big thing there is your calorie deficit should be about 250 to 500 calories per day. Not a lot, but when you add that up, that's going to be around 1750, I believe 3,500 calories a week, 3,500 calories a week is pretty much equal to a pound. So if you're going in a calorie deficit of 500 per day, that's going to add up and you're going to lose about a pound of fat per week, which is great because slow and steady is where you want to be. Ultimately, that's going to be easier to maintain. So that other thing I mentioned about working in a calorie deficit for too long, if you have been doing that for 12 weeks, it's time to move it on up and do a reverse diet, which basically all that means is you're working up to your new maintenance level and you want to let your body adjust before you jump back down into a deficit. I would give it eight to 12 weeks at a maintenance level. So that's kind of the big thing there. And for example, on the nutrition program, if you are down at, let's say you're down at a cut, you don't want to automatically jump up to maintenance. You want to work your way back up to the next goal that's a little higher, which would be lean out. And then you want to work your way up to maintenance. And I would do that at about two weeks at a time, whether you're trying to lose weight or gain weight, think little small steps, your body's going to respond a lot better and you're going to avoid hitting plateaus. Cool. There you go. Summer. We got you. This next question is from at also creeping, which I think it's hilarious because in parentheses, this is working from a patrol car. I'm like, what the fuck? That's I get it now. I get it now. Also creeping. Um, this question was what snacks can we eat that are easy, clean and can be eaten cold because he's working from a patrol car. Hence the creeping. So I, I love this question because so many people tend to automatically hit the easy button and do fast food, gas stations, something in a box or a bag. You don't need to necessarily do that. So some easy snacks you can grab would be things like nuts, seeds, low sugar granola. Seriously, flip over that package and look because there's so much added sugar in that crap. Fruit, cut veggies. If you cut up bell peppers, celery, carrots, you can eat those with hummus or peanut butter. Um, and then if you want to get fancy with it, you can do some Greek yogurt parfaits. You can do mason jar salads. Just keep that dressing separate until you're ready to eat it or it's going to get soggy and disgusting. Also think about like high protein things like tuna salad or chicken salad and put it on a bread or a wrap. Even like just go old fashioned sandwiches, um, make your own bistro boxes, things like that. Actually, I, the recipes are on the meal plan. So if you search snack in the nutrition program, not, all that comes up. Not snack with two C's. <laughs> snack sm- spelled the correct way. And so then all these recipes will populate. But a lot of them are, are you can eat on the go. So if you have a lunchbox, I still have a lunchbox at age 
29. I'm not going to lie. I bring it to the office every day. We're going to start calling you. That's Brooke's new nickname. <laughs> Pack your lunchbox. <laughs> lunchbox. And you can make it, you can absolutely make it work. So those are just some ideas off the top of my head. And uh, definitely check out, just search snack, or there's even a button. Just click snack. and It'll populate all the different snacks. And a lot of them are totally cool to just keep refrigerated and eat like that. All right, there you go. So how to eat snacks and look like a snack and the snacks that you need to eat to look like a snack while in a patrol car. <laughs> Almost spit my water out. <laughs> All right. Next one, at Shouse, Shouse.CB. Every, God dang it, every try CBD THC. Okay. Oh, ever try. What the hell, Chris? Ever, <laughs> ever try, not every, well, it says every try, ever try CBD slash THC mix for a long run. George, you're the resident long runner in the group. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I've actually utilized CBD um, on long runs in in place of Advil and done really well with it. You do have to, and this is coming from experience, you have to be careful in the type of CBD that you're utilizing, um, especially when we're talking about uh, oil-based because sometimes some of those CBD oil-based come with different types of oils into it already that, you know, like essential oils help you sleep and all that other stuff. So some of that does have it, other roots and, and all that stuff get put into it and it does cause other effects besides what the CBD does. Um, so avoid having anything, make sure it's just pure CBD. Um, if you're doing isolate, use isolate. If you're doing full spectrum, use full spectrum. But I have utilized it um, in, in, in order to go ahead and relieve symptoms of nausea and pain in races. Um, yeah, I have, yeah, like I said, THC wise, I, I, I don't race on THC. I don't think it's a smart idea. Um, it's yeah. So that's a whole different topic and conversation, but yeah, CBD for long runs and replace of Advil all about it. Um, again, if you're not, if you're prior, if you're military, that's a whole other thing, but if you're not military and you're golden, you're cool. Um, and that I know of can't, don't quote me on this, but I think they have actually just passed that you can utilize CBD as a pain management uh, pill in races in ultra running. I could be completely, I've heard that. That'd be interesting to look All into right. that more. Yeah, make don't, sure you guys look into that more. Yeah, definitely. Don't run when you're high. <laughs> Check. <laughs> All right, next one, kicking it back over to Brooke from at Sav Schwartz. Well, I think we can all probably chime in on this one. Thoughts about using peanut M&Ms as motivation. You are is not a dog. Is this Savannah? This is yeah. Savannah. <laughs> You're not a dog. Don't use food as reward or punishment. <laughs> That's touche. Which, but then again, you know, Savannah, like you, you bring up this, you bring up a really good point, right? Because we do live in a reward based culture and we do like, we look at our fitness as this, like we look at our fitness like punishment, like we're punishing ourselves for something and then therefore reward ourselves with, you know, peanut M&Ms, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And it's not to say there's anything wrong with peanut M&Ms or Ben and Jerry's ice cream, but like this idea of one, developing a healthy relationship with the food that we eat and understanding that, you know, food is nothing but, you know, calories in, calories out. Like there's there's no reward for food. There's no, you know, you, you should break yourself of that mindset because ultimately when we see people adopt this understanding, we see it manifest itself in a lot of really interesting but nonetheless destructive ways. Like the gym is not punishment. Training is not punishment. I mean, yes, there is a degree to which you will be uncomfortable in your training, but like that, that uncomfort is designed to elicit a specific stress adaptation not to punish you for like 
having love handles or not appearing sexy in your bikini like all that like that's that's tied into your self-esteem which is a completely separate issue uh than the things that we try to address in our training so i mean you really have to understand that because yeah i mean i get it we live in a you know a curated instagram world where everything looks perfect all the time and you know this is the expectation that you have and 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 i get it like even if you're the most performance athlete in the world like Everyone wants to feel good and look good naked, and but that that is a self esteem issue. In fact, actually, true story. Um, was doing uh, some yoga teacher training this last weekend, and um, one of the teachers who came in was she. She had battled, you know, lifelong depression, and uh, but used yoga and meditation as her prescription for you know dealing with all of it. And one of the way, you know, one of the meditation techniques that she recommended was to meditate in front of a, a mirror naked. Like, like literally, like, like look at yourself, like begin to love this thing that you are um, as raw as you possibly can, you know, not curated, not professionally lit, but, you know, have a solid base in self-confidence that allows you to go forth and, you know, do the things that ultimately you want to do and train yourself and feel yourself appropriately and not look at, again, the gym as punishment or yoga or sweating it all out as like punishment for your Thanksgiving dinner. Um, but, you know, just, just love who you are and, you know, conduct yourself accordingly. So, yeah. Amen. Amen. Uh, I, I, I'm gonna look at that though too. Is like I, I get where she's coming with that, and I think, I, and I, I, I'm. It's funny we use the M M&M, and M, um, the M M&M and M as a uh, as the example. Is this but I take you this do in, the, in the George household. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. But I, I want to take this over and transfer it over to like, how many times do we touch our phone every five minutes when we're working on the computer? Raise your hand if you do that. I mean, we just talked about it right now. We've been on the podcast every single time. We grab you have guys have grabbed my phone. I've even done it, right? So it's one of those things. Is like it's a uh, it's a way to recondition yourself to actually not do something so much, so you can actually have that balance. And the way I look at that reconditioning is, is if I'm working on my computer, I'm gonna go ahead and be like every 20 minutes, I'm gonna grab my phone and look at it, compared to thinking about grabbing it every five minutes, I now can cut it down to that. And you can start building. So, okay, every 30 minutes, I'll take a break from my computer and do those kinds of things. So, it, you know, when we take that example of eating M&Ms as motivation, <laughs> yes, there is there is a deeper, deeper, oh, deeper. Yeah. Sub well, M&Ms for your. That was, you know, that was, you know, Pavlov's dog, right? Like the bell rings and the dog salivates. So it's like, so, but, but I think, you know, and, and this even really kind of feeds into our next question very well when we talk about neuromuscular development for athletes is that, you know, we're creating these feedback loops in our life with our actions and our habits, you know, and and everything is moldable, right? Like, I mean, I, I think people fall into the, the mindset of thinking, well, uh, this is just how I am and I can never break the cycle. And that's absolutely not true. Um, science tells us that that's not true. Like, you can adjust your habits. You can create new mechanisms in your life to to get different sort of feedback and, and you can adjust your perspective on a lot of your activities um, because ultimately it's like, you know, you, you kind of joke around with people every once in a while. You're like, dude, we, we still enjoy this stuff, right? Like going to the gym and training and all that stuff. Like even though it sucks, like this stuff's still fun to us, you know? And, and there's a lot of times when it's when it's really not fun. And, and that's usually when we've 
kind of really changed our perspective. And usually sometimes, unless you're a, you know, a seasoned athlete, sometimes that perspective can be changed for the worse. So something to be mindful of. We talked about mindfulness earlier in the podcast, but again, guys, food is not reward. Food, your training is not punishment. Um, yeah, but kind of going straight from there into the next one from at Takeshi Kovac, uh, talk about using neuromuscular development in athletes. I'm assuming you talk about meaning developing like new neural pathways. Um, but I, 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 I know what he's talking about. I, Cause I had it like, I, when he asked that question, I was like, well, what are you looking? Are you looking in terms of like, you know, how to, you know, squat, how to do a specific task without having that conscious, uh, effort in there and actually having it like that compliment, you know, and he actually was asking how do we de- redevelop and rewire the athlete to do things, um, oh, from a bad okay. way to a new way. So for example, gotcha. let's go and take an athlete who squats and they're, they have pain on their right hip and they shift as a squat down. Well, it's like, how do we go ahead and rewire that? You know, and, and again, it's, it's again, working through the, neuro, the neuromuscular aspect of things, right? When we talk about, you know, muscles and nerves paired together. That's just kind of what we're doing there. And the way I like to look at it is like, and I read this from a book called Behave. Um, I forgot the name of the author, but it's a really good book. And it talks about like the evolution of pretty much a human being from the baboon stage all the way up to where we're at today. But he broke it down really cool. And he goes, think about, think about your nervous system and your muscles connected to each other like a piano. And Every time you hit a button on the piano, it makes a sound. Well, what ends up happening is, is when you start having these buttons start to like not work, it's because they're glued down to, to the piano due to improper firing or improper use or however you want to think about it. And that's kind of the same way we can look at our brain or the way our nerves and muscles work together. And what we have to do is we have to slowly unglue that to go ahead and get it back to working to make sure that we move across that you know, that rewiring of the neuromuscular, you know, athlete of what we're trying to do for them to make it happen. So now instead of having this one key that's just glued to the, to the piano the whole time and it's just stuck, we have now released it to where now we regroove that, that nerve pattern or that movement pattern in the athlete to do the right thing. And even in shooting, right? Like that's another big thing we do. We do a lot of that. Uh, with Softly, like Softly's shooting program is literally like three to four days of dry firing with one day of live firing. Well, you yeah, know? And, we t- and we talk about it in all our, you know, when, when we talk about our programming methodology, this idea of moving simple to complex, low skill to high skill, you know, you're, you're grooving out those new patterns and you're building one on top of another and you're, and you're not skipping steps. I think where, you know, you, you start really and and there the the verdict is still out you know like how like the different methodologies that you use to you know create this sort of adaptation whether it's like plyometric training for explosiveness or isometric training um you know there's there's a lot of different ways to go about addressing you know some of these baseline issues um, and, and it very much depends on the individual. And so, you know, everyone's going to need a different type of neuromuscular development depending on, you know, the issue that they're working through specifically. So, but nonetheless, I mean, ultimately what we're trying to do, it, it, the goal of any program, doesn't really matter what it is, is this idea that we are trying to get you to move optimally, period. You know, whether that, you know, if you want to squat a thousand pounds, your squat has to be really good. 
and you have to be really strong, but you have to be able to take those two concepts and apply them together at the strength at the same time. Like you need, you need a squat pattern to, that allows you to tap into all of your strength, not a squat pattern that, you know, puts you forward onto your toes, which cuts off your posterior chain, which makes it to where you're only really actually utilizing 50 to 60% of your overall capabilities. So, so these neuromuscular patterns and neuromuscular training that we utilize, I mean, it's designed to just honestly get people to move well. Um, because the assumption that we're all making is that, you know, if you look at your life and you look at the activities that you do, all your activities require optimal movement, especially like if you want to go out and live that adventure type lifestyle, you know, you want to be able to move really, really well, keeps you injury proof and keeps you happy. Yeah, and one thing too on this to understand that, like you know, one thing about neuromuscular training, like it, there, there, there is research out there and there's evidence out there, but a lot of it, it's hard to say that if it's if it's valid or not. And some studies do say that. You know, you can look up a, a study called Sports Specific Assessment of the Effectiveness of Neuromuscular Training in in Young Athletes, right? And that's that talks a lot about how. You know, there's a lot of studies and there's a lot of tests out there that don't really cater to doing that or it can't really be done something due to the fact of the individualness of the of the athlete. Right. And the goal with that is to improve and enhance muscle muscle strength, power and the the balance and speed and agility of what we're doing. But it also have to understand that, like, if you're prior military, you're in the military and you've done multiple uh you know, shoot houses and you've had to go ahead and do multiple dry fires and multiple speed reloads, dry firing drills over and over and over again. That is just an example of neuromuscular training. All I'm doing, and it's as simple as I'm literally pulling my mag out, putting my dump pouch, grab my next one, going right into it. Or if I'm speed, re you know, anything you want to think about, it's, it's all those things. And it goes back to slowing down and it goes back to the idea of me understanding, you know, you, to go fast, you must go slow. It's like, you got to go slow to go fast and understand that. And that's realistically all we're asking you to do is slow it completely down and focus on, on doing that. And I promise you're going to go ahead and repave like that way you do the thing. Absolutely. All right. Back over to B West as she's taking her selfies and updating her Instagram profile. I was not <laughs> rude. Don't don't make me seem like a vapid airhead. You are not a vap. You are my bestest friend. Um at Coach E Puft PFP. <laughs> if if I burn upwards of six thousand calories a day according to Whoop. How should I be eating to perform? Well, great question. Needless to say, they're needless to say they're Michael Phelps. I don't think you're burning six thousand calories. That a was day. my first point. <laughs> do not, do not, do not. Anyone listening, base your nutritional needs off of an activity tracker. There's too many variables, and in this situation, I think that you're probably an outlier. Which, if you're, because that's just crazy. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's a robust amount of calories. And um, I actually was talking to Doug about this for before the show because I do not have a whoop. So he was kind of explaining he wears multiple wearables and they will vary up to 1500 calories. So I wouldn't actually base your needs off of that. I think that you should be using activity tractors to track trends. So... It, it's, it might not be the right baseline because it's all predictive equations, but you can absolutely tell am I burning more or less on certain days and track trends that way. That's totally cool. I think whoop is better for, you know, heart rate variability and recovery stuff and not so much estimating calories you burn a day. That being said, 
when you want to eat to perform, the first thing you need to do is have an appropriate resting metabolic rate calculation done. This depends on your body type, your activity level. Are you an athlete? What's your body fat looking like? This is why it's important to have a dietitian. And in this, in the, in the app, it does all this for you. It actually, and no one realizes that, but it's doing all of this to determine what calculation route you even need to be taking. If you want to take it a step further, which I recommend for someone who's clearly as active as you, I would recommend getting a DEXA scan because that's going to tell you a lot more information. And the most accurate way to calculate your resting metabolic rate is going to be off of your lean mass. So you're going to get your DEXA scan. It's going to tell you all kinds of great information, like your bone density, your body fat. It's going to tell you down to the gram where the lean mass is on your body. These are all really great tools. And I recommend doing this every six months, at least even more every three to four, if you're a higher performing athlete to make sure you're tracking some accurate trends. This is a super accessible thing now. Um, it doesn't even cost that much, usually around $60 a scan. Uh, so I really recommend prioritizing your health in, in that way. So you can use your lean mass to then determine your needs. And it'll also run a calculation based off of all of these things right there on the DEXA scan sheet. So that'll give you a better idea of what your resting metabolic rate actually is instead of the WHOOP calculation and whatever that's running. Uh, if you're on the meal plan, you know, we have the performance category and essentially you can apply this in life is it's slightly above your maintenance level because it's going to make sure that you have the enough fuel to perform, build muscle and show up, not just maintain where you're at. And so you can apply that same thing in life is you should be above and a DEXA will tell you your baseline and then it'll usually give you um, different activity factors, but that's basically how all these calculations are done is there's a predictive resting metabolic rate calculation. We multiply it by an activity level factor for your lifestyle. And I feel like I'm making it sound simple, but there's a lot to it. If you have questions, feel free to email me at Brooke at softly.com. Activity level rock star. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding all right cool guys i hope that you got something from that the next one i'm man the, from from at rich froning jr i highly doubt this is the actual rich froning jr who's asking this question but <laughs> you know, we'll go ahead and pretend like it actually is rich froning you know fittest man in the world several years in a row you know all this cool stuff he wants to know assuming that it is in fact a he um, he wants to talk about nutrition, macro, intuitive eating, high carbs, after workout and fasting. So just remember, Brooke. So he's basically wanting me to do three separate podcasts and a three to five minute answer. Th this is Rich Froning Jr. You're talking about. I can't let him down. You cannot let Rich Froning Jr. The pressure's down. on. So you, you better answer Rich here. This is a really loaded question, but I can simmer it down to one theme. Your choice of nutrition pattern, because basically you're just talking about all these different theories and nutrition patterns, should fit your lifestyle. There's never going to be a one size fits all for nutrition. I wish there was. I wish I could wave a wand and say this is the magic answer for everyone. That's not a thing. So there is, however, usually a one size fits most and a good place to start. When it comes to tracking macros as an approach, I really don't recommend people track macros 24 seven, 365. I think that that can create unhealthy relationships with food and it's just not necessary. So I recommend adding some intuitive eating in there to break up your tracking. M to me, macro tracking, following meal plans to a T should really only be done in segments 
to help you be aware of portion sizes, what's appropriate, what do I actually need? Then you should think of it as a learning educational period. Then if you want to go out on the weekends or you want to do some intuitive eating for a while, see how that goes for you. You've had this baseline to learn and see this is what should actually be on my plate. Um, we actually had a whole episode on intuitive eating a lot about body image, but we talked about intuitive eating and that's on the softly performance podcast episode three. So I recommend checking that out if you want more information on that. Um, also asking about fasting, another loaded question. We did a whole episode softly performance podcast number two, where we talked about fasting diets. Again, there's no, I think in our society with diet culture, we want this magic answer of something that's superior. Fasting is not superior form of weight loss. It's not. There's some interesting research coming out that I'm going to touch on later because someone had another question about it, but I recommend picking a nutritional pattern that's realistic for you and your lifestyle. Cool. Well, I mean, Rich, if you're out there, man, I'm a huge fan. Uh, you should definitely come work out at headquarters one of these days. Just open invite. Send me a DM on Instagram, and uh, we'll get you hooked up, man. It'd be really cool to work out with you, but I feel like I'm just getting my hopes up because I, I don't know if this is the actual Rich Froning Jr. I'm talking to. But anyways, nonetheless, still good, sound nutrition advice. Number 14, uh, at Dang Kaiser. Like, Dang Kaiser. All right. The use of yoga as a solo practice or incorporate into an existing training cycle. Um good question. It really depends on the type of yoga, believe it or not. And it also depends on your training cycle. Um, there are, you know, traditionally speaking, yes, yoga is very popular for the use of active recovery. It is, we do have longer flows programmed into a lot of our current teams, strength, stamina, typically on Wednesdays, they have longer flow active recovery days. Um, but there is also a lot of, there is types of yoga out there that's designed to kind of do the opposite rather than elicit a, a parasympathetic recovery response. There is types of yoga out there that's designed to elicit a sympathetic response. So you could actually be doing the opposite of what you want. Um, you know, difference between like a yin recovery and a kundalini if you want to get all technical with it. But in any case, um, it depends on really how your existing training cycle is structured. Uh, we would always recommend that one, you shouldn't be training 100% every day. So at least one, we have recovery. Well, if you're following one of our training cycles, all of our training days have a recovery protocol attached to them with mobility and focused flow recovery type work. Furthermore, uh, within our training cycles, there are additional active recovery days that you can use to either A, go on a longer run, hike, bike, whatever, or you know there is a, a yoga flow that's attached to that. So very useful um, when it comes to the active recovery portion, in my opinion, if you uh, practice such things. But uh, but yeah, like I said, I uh, you can also treat yoga as a solo practice. There are a lot of people who just do yoga. Um, we did do a yoga podcast a couple episodes ago. Um, so reference that if you have any more specific questions or just hit us up. Anyone? Sounds good. All right. At the stars at night. <laughs> How much avocado is too much avocado? There's no such thing There's as too much avocado. I love avocado. Just kidding. There probably is. Uh, that's a great question. That's like my favorite food. Avocados are amazing. Probably the appropriate serving size would be a third to a half of an avocado. A third is about 50 grams. And in that 50 grams, 
there's 80 calories, almost 20 vitamins and minerals. So it's a super nutrient dense food. And the macros are pretty solid. A lot of people think it's just fat and it's not. There's eight grams of fat, four grams of carb, three of which are grams of fiber. So that's awesome. And a gram of protein. So yay team avocado. Unless you're keto, then you can't even eat avocados on really when you're keto because there's so much. Yeah, because there's so much carbs. A lot of people you could work them in, I guess, but a lot of people avoid them. Another devastating reason not to be keto. Just saying. (laughs) All right. At JBFJ40. Sound like a computer virus, but that's okay. Um, What what's the simplest repeatable meal plan? The one you can stick to. This is going to look different for everyone. And the way we set up the Softly Nutrition program, there's alternating days, which for some people is too much. I personally meal prep the same thing for the whole week a lot of the times because it's easy and it's, you know, simple to stick to. All right. So whatever works for you. Hold on. Wait, you hear that? You hear that? Bombs dropped. I don't. I don't understand what just happened. Knowledge bombs, bro. Oh, knowledge, knowledge bombs, bro. Bombs. Okay, got it. <laughs> Where was I? Uh, next one. Eb at Eb Carl twenty three. The effects of Advil, Tylenol, Excedrin on diet and gut health. I love this question. So NSAIDs um, would be ibuprofen and naproxen. They actually do alter the gut microbiome and they can cause other gastrointestinal issues like stomach ulcers. Your doctor, if you're someone who needs to take NSAIDs for some reason, your doctor might prescribe you a proton pump inhibitor, which basically just reduces the amount of stomach acid that are produced by the glands and the lining of your stomach. But all of this is really hard on your kidneys. So if you can get away with it, I would avoid using NSAIDs. And keep in mind that there's also some evidence that they can affect the lining of your gut and your intestinal permeability. So I wouldn't use and abuse this. Like, for example, if you run every day and your knees hurt and you're going to say, oh, well, I'm going to use this as a recovery protocol, I really would rec- would not recommend doing that unless you have to. And if you have to, think about other things that we've talked about that you could utilize, I guess. Talk to your doctor. I'm not a doctor. But I explain the gut health part. Aspirin is also technically an NSAID and it can cause gastrointestinal bleeding. So there's another risk there. Uh, Tylenol, which was mentioned, is not an NSAID. It's usually easier on the stomach. So if you really need to use an over-the-counter pain management of some kind, go ahead and use Tylenol. But again, if you take large doses or you're taking this for prolonged periods of time, it can cause liver damage, especially if you're pairing any of these with alcohol. So even just because it's over the counter, it's not like an opiate or something that you need to get from a pharmacy doesn't mean that it's without without risk. So just keep that in mind. Fair enough. All right. Next one. At Brett Short, should sucralose be avoided? That's an interesting question because, you know, I, I mean, I have, I have my take on it, but, you know, but this is not really from a nutrition standpoint. I mean, it has nutritional effects, but so. You have like an ethical standpoint well, of some kind? Like, a, like okay. So when we, when we talk about like the human palate, 
right? And how the human palate has changed over, you know, the last several hundred years when it comes to the food that we've eaten, right? So up to, you know, up to really like, you know, God, I don't know, maybe like the mid to early 1900s, like we're, we're talking about just like regular sugar, sugar cane, like stuff that's stuff that's more natural, right? But now we're talking about us like in, in, I believe it was in the 60s when they came out with like the new category of sweet. Like foods have become sweeter, like to the point where like our palate and our brain just like don't know what to do with like these such sweet things but that then you know, I mean, like in elicits like an actual hormonal and, you know, brain response, like when you eat sweets. Mm, Some of that's a little debatable, but I get where you're going with this. But like, but that changes the way you eat the, like the things that you crave. We are trying to out sweeten sugar, which is a dangerous road. And that's what happened really with some of these, um, artificial sweeteners. And they, they taste weird. They've got an aftertaste. Sometimes there's like a bitterness to them. And, if you stop eating a bunch of high sugar foods, you stop craving it. Right. So you don't need to put a whole packet of Splenda in your coffee. Right. Because if you go without it for a week, you're not even going to sure. crave it. But that's the, but, but agree or disagree, the, the sweeter the substance, the harder it is to break, right? I mean, like if you, does that analogy transfer over? Because I, I mean, I just feel. I see what you're saying. I just feel like, like the, and, and sugar is just an example, but when we look at a lot of other examples of how, food and taste really has been altered like to to elicit this like really intense emotional attachment like because i mean these these things make us ultimately feel good like people eat chocolate when they're sad you know because i mean because of correct me if i'm wrong ladies out there in the world like when you're sad like how many of you like go towards some sweet type it's of not food. just ladies I, let's okay. not be sexist fair here enough, fair enough People, emotional eating emotional eating tied to sweetness across the board across, and yeah. it's like and and but a lot fat of, fat's the same way it's like yeah. high fat or high sugar right so like but but these types of things like essentially manipulating or out sweetening sugar i contribute as part of that problem so that's just me now that we've got the full Chris feelings about sucralose. Let's get down to what, first of all, what is it? A lot of people, it's a zero calorie artificial sweetener. It's uh, Splenda, right? So Splenda is sucralose. So just because it doesn't have calories doesn't mean that it doesn't affect the body. So what's really interesting now is there is research suggesting that it may alter the gut microbiome. And we know that the gut microbiome is attached to everything the gut brain connection. We've got um, our hormones, our neurotransmitters. There's a lot going on. So anything that we're doing to alter our gut microbiome could be risk. That being said, a lot of the times it's when you have multiple factors that you're going to see problems. And we can't even say for sure. I'm kind of a skeptic when it comes to research. Those of you who have been around a while listening to the podcast know that. So we'll see what continues to to happen with this. And a lot of the research they've done with sucralose is done on rats. So it's, you know, I, I have a feeling we're going to have to wait to see some of that evolve, but it could alter the gut microbiome. A lot of people also with artificial sweeteners will report things like bloating and gas. And so if you're someone who knows it's affecting your body in that way, don't eat it. Definitely avoid it. So just listen to what your body has to say. Fair enough. There you go. 19 at Sean M. Mack. Sean, yeah, nope, Sean, yeah, Sean M. Knack, Sean M. 
neck. How do I, how do I balance drinking in parentheses, capital lightly and nutrition? Listen, bro, I, I get your question. Just Chris is still trying to figure it out too. Yeah, I'm, yeah you and me both, man. We're uh, listen. Too I, many pumpkin spice IPAs love, over at love, Chris's house. I love me some beer because I'm. Ba- I have. I have a. I have a. I have a theory that if you're not training for anything, you're just training to eat. I mean, that's like if you have no training goal, like if you're just out there just working, like you're you're ultimately just training to consume the food that you want and not have, you know, too bad of like dad bod gains before this art. <laughs> dad bod gains you need to start hashtagging that um when it comes to alcohol if you're someone who can responsibly consume it i think there's a place (laughs) for it in the diet i do i i'm a big believer in balance and you know so if you want to occasionally have appropriate amount of drinks during the week that's fine there's definitely ways to track it if you're super if you're hyper focused on a nutritional goal surrounding weight loss so alcohol is weird it's got its own calorie breakdown so it's actually seven calories per gram versus carbs and fat are four calories per gram fat is nine calories per gram so that's kind of something that's weird about alcohol so if you want to track it and try and work it in that way you can track it as carbohydrates or you can track it as fats but i would always try to meet your protein goals and then track it that way. So let's say you're having a drink that's 120 calories. You can divide it by four and count it as 30 grams of carb, or you can divide that 120 calories by nine and count it as 13 grams of fat. So, or you can split it and break up your macros that way. So there's ways to track it, but honestly, I believe in balance and moderation. (laughs) So, so if you want to so, have a drink, so it's okay. In, in other words, uh, swap your vodka Red Bulls out for a glass of red wine in the evening. <laughs> hey, I, that's my go-to is some red wine. And you're gonna, and then also drinking, you can get really like don't have some like frou frou shooters and like rum and cokes all night because then like, you're just drinking sugar. Sex on the beach is not on the meal plan. <laughs> <laughs> or is it? <laughs> All right, um, at Andrea Hart 2009. What's up, Andrea? Good to see you at the Softly Open House. Anyway, she says supplements that have research behind them, not some BS short for bullshit. I love this question because supplements are not held to the same FDA standards where they have to prove any marketing claims. They can put just about anything they want on a label, which is really misleading to the consumer. So of notable mention things that meet marketing claims like common things would be caffeine carbohydrate protein sports drinks like you've got they make like gatorade you know know, pre-made shakes like muscle milk things like that protein supplementation creatine creatine is actually one of the most researched supplements ever oh god let's bring up that again i remember (laughs) good lord (laughs) Also carbohydrate solution and carbohydrate electrolyte solutions, which are really important in George's realm of, you know, endurance. And those do meet marketing claims. Some that possibly meet marketing claims where where the jury is still out that are common beta alanine. I love to argue this one with people just because you're itchy doesn't mean it's doing shit. Yep. Branch chain amino acids possibly meet marketing claims. Same with collagen. Uh, that's kind of a trendy thing right now, but there's not evidence 
that we're consuming it as collagen? Is it reaching our cells? Is it being digested as collagen? Eh, iffy. So that's like possibly meeting marketing claims along with uh, probiotics and prebiotics. It depends on the type as to if it's actually meeting the marketing claims. I mean, this could be a whole nother podcast because there's so many, but those are just, I think the common ones I wanted to touch on. The placebo effect is a real thing. Also true. (laughs) All right. George, did you have anything to add on that one? Um, no, man, I I, I try to stay away from the supplement aspect of talking about it because I'm not very uh, knowledgeable in the realm of it all. So I usually pass it to either Brooke or to Bill. I just stick with the advice of you shouldn't, you shouldn't eat the thing that has like the Chinese markings on the, on the box. Well, the big thing I want to hammer home is food first, supplement, supplement the diet. So it shouldn't really, you know, matter that much. All right. At trick or treat 33 treat. Oh, no, I misread that. At treat underscore or trick 33. How would you incorporate more fish into your meal planning? Any cooking methods to make it last? So I think people Mm. think that they have to eat a ton of fish, and it's actually less than you would think. So for adults, the general recommendation is two to three servings a week, and a serving is about four ounces. So that's only eight to 12 ounces a fish a week. Yeah. So it's not as much as you would think. And then those omega threes stay in your system and all that good stuff. So the thing with fish is when you buy it, I recommend cooking it within two days or things can get a little, a little iffy, a little funky. Yeah. So make sure you're storing it appropriately in the refrigerator, cook it within two days. And then the FDA says to eat it within three to four days. That's the general guideline. If you really don't like fish, I have a lot of people ask me this question. If you really don't like fish and you don't want to consume it, there's lots of great benefits. That's okay. Don't force feed yourself some salmon or something. Take a high quality omega-3 supplement. Nice. Do you want to hear a fish joke? Sure. Let's hear it. What did the fish say when it hit the wall? What? Damn. (laughs) 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 All right. Yeah. Get them. All right. Here we go. Last one, guys. We appreciate all your feedback, but this was from at Mark Get Set Go. Opinions on intermittent fasting, and we have definitely done a performance podcast episode on this. So aside from that, B. West. I have so many opinions on this, so much so that we do have an episode, Softly Performance Podcast, episode two. I also wrote an article up on the Softly blog you can check out. Um, basically, main overarching things, so I don't go off on a tangent. If these eating patterns work for you and your lifestyle go for it. If this is something that helps you create a calorie deficit when you're trying to lose weight, go for it. My big thing there is make sure you're working out in your feeding window. A lot of the protocols say work out, then afterwards you break your fast and you eat. I don't think that the research shows benefit there. I think that you need to eat something pre-workout. And a lot of people are like, well, what if I work out in the morning and I'm not hungry? Eat a little something, a banana, a piece of fruit, uh, anything I think is, is better than totally on an empty stomach. And we've talked about this a lot. Uh, but that's really my big thing there. There's also no evidence that intermittent fasting is a superior form of weight management and weight loss. Everyone's like, Oh, this is, this is it. Like, no, it's not. The best form of weight management is what works for you and what you can stick to. So if this works for you, go for it. 
There is some interesting research coming out about aging at the cellular level, what fasting and fasting mimicking diets do. Fascinating. I recommend going to check out Dr. Dr. Walter Longo. His research is really interesting. I think it's in the beginning stages and we're going to have to see what happens, but um, definitely check out that podcast where we, we, we dove into all the nitty gritty details. Boom. Well, there you go, guys. We appreciate all your guys' feedback. Um, we'll definitely be doing this again, so stay tuned. Um, hopefully, you guys appreciate all the shout-outs. Just don't harass us on social media. But anyways, if you guys do have any more questions or you do have anything that you guys want to talk about, feel free to email us, message us uh, on social media. You got at Namaslaya at BrookwestRDN, at CoachGB3. If you want to reach us, again, we're here for you. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, yeah, share it with your friends, and we'll see you guys here next week. Later. <laughs>